welcome to the Modern Mind Huff Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in most things Modern Mind Huff. We talk about left-wing German terrorism of the 1970s, student radicalism, and other related ephemera. I'm not an expert in everything, and that brings us today's subject, um, Heinrich Boll and Springer Press. And I have an interview today with Professor Carl Taya, creative writing professor, and he's also an author and a playwright based at the University of Derby. And and we're talking about a recent article that he wrote about um, the the Nobel Prize winning author Heinrich Boll and and um, the um, the conservative German press that was sort of the the bete noir of the left wing in Germany in the 60s and 70s. It's kind of a fascinating, fascinating conversation. And um, and I actually learned a lot. I know a lot about this subject, but I learned a lot um, speaking with him and reading about um, this subject in, in the article he wrote. Um, I've linked to it in the show notes um, for this podcast. So if you go to my website and go to the podcast link and and I'll have a link under the actual uh, podcast link that's that's up there, and and probably on the homepage as well, um, if you want to read more about it. It's fascinating. It's all in English, because I know most of my listeners are English folks. But anyway, uh, without further ado, I want to present my interview with Doctor or Professor Carl Ty of the University of Derby. So we're speaking with Professor Carl Ty, who um, teaches at. Uh, creative writing at the University of, of Derby or Darby? How do you pronounce that over in the UK? Darby. Darby. Darby yes. <laughs> the only thing I know about Darby is that's where the um, the that's where the famous soccer team is from, right? Um, yes. From from uh, the, we we have a, we have a soccer player here that's like a Seattle legend that he <laughs> played there in the seventies, Alan Hinton. But he's yeah. he's been here for like the past thirty years, so we love him. And that's the only connection I know about that. But you're a professor there. You teach creative writing, and you also wrote um, kind of an excellent piece recently about um, the Springer Press and Heinrich Heinrich Boll. Um, yeah. So, who was Heinrich Boll? Why was he why was he such an important figure in post-war Germany? Oh, he's an interesting character. He He's one of the leading post-war writers uh, in that period that Germans often refer to it as rubble literature. And it's the writer, it's a group of writers mainly centered around a small group of writers called Group 47. They started writing together in 1947, and it, it includes uh, Gunter Grass and several other people. Mm-hmm. And they were mainly writers who had decided that somehow they had to confront recent German history, and they had to find a way to remake German literature. And Bell's an interesting character because he had a, a, a rather difficult career up to this point. He'd been conscripted into the army as an infantryman, He'd been wounded twice. He'd deserted twice. He was lucky they didn't shoot him. Um, he'd finally been captured by the Americans and then rele- was released. But I think he was very unhappy with the way that the denazification process had gone and was not very happy with the way that Germans were dealing with their recent history. And he and a group of writers started to write stories about German history, uh, about their experience, and they rather clashed with the Springer Press. Uh, 
Yeah. But I guess we'll come to that in a moment. He did win the Nobel Prize, so he's uh, he's no slouch. <laughs> yeah, not not at all. So in, so in um, 1974, he published uh, The Lost Honor of Katerina Bloom, which, which sort of directly addressed the power that the Springer Press held over public opinion. So what was the Springer Press, and how big of an impact did they have on German society in the late 60s, early 70s? Ah, oh, okay. Well, the Springer Press is, is maybe... Uh, um, it's, it's a little bit difficult for us at this distance to appreciate the impact that the Springer Press had. Springer himself had started um, in Hamburg in, in the 1940s, and he'd started out with a small radio magazine called Hotsu, which means something like Tune In. And he very quickly got um, a circulation of about four million for this thing by, by the late 60s. And on the back of that, he began to build up an enormous press consortium, really. And it's been said that something like 57% of all Germans read some item from the Springer Press every day. 57%. Astonishing. And, yeah, and even, and even like on like Sundays, didn't they have something have like a ninety percent readership? They they were literally the only thing yeah. if somebody read a Sunday paper, they were reading a Springer paper. Well, the the statistics statistics are that forty percent of all West German newspapers were owned by the Springer Press, eighty percent of all regional newspapers, ninety percent of the Sunday papers, fifty percent of the weekly papers, and sixty six percent of the daily papers. Now that's the kind of press power you really can't argue with. Wow. Wow. And how did, and how did they um, um, depict the student, the student movement and, and, uh, and uh, the growth of left-wing left homegrown terrorism, terrorism, such as like, such as like RAF, RAF and second segment? Well, they, they clashed almost immediately. And I think the RAF, the Red Army faction, um, the, the Bader-Meinhof gang, really, in, in a way, the Springer Press gave them a lot of the ammunition that they, they needed to survive. Um, the clash was was pretty instant. Um, the problem really was that the politically the Springer Press went the the size of the Springer Press, the power of the Springer Press, went against everything the Allies had tried to do with the West German newspapers at the end of the war. They tried to break up the power of the press because they saw that um, Hitler had come to power on manipulate partly through manipulating the press so so effectively and partly through these enormous industrial combines these uh, cartels that they had in germany and the allies thought that one of the ways to make sure this couldn't happen again was to break up the press break up industry into smaller organizations smaller companies and so on but really the springer press uh, thrived in spite of this and i think the real problem was that the cold war made the Allies think again about their efforts, and really they needed something that they themselves could manipulate and use. Um, and in that sense, uh, Germany's efforts to sort of denazify itself really hit the rocks, um, partly because thing, organizations like the Springer Press really were very popular, and popular in, in the old German sense of... Uh, uh, being rather um, lowbrow, yeah, and yeah. populist in their appeal, um, 
not being particularly sensitive about how they handled stories and being rather rough with everybody who they disagreed with. Yeah, and there's yeah, there was certainly there was no, no better friend better to the friend. Allied cause than Springer Press. My dad remembers when we lived in Berlin in the early 70s, he remembered the big Berlin... Um, Springer uh, Press Springer office it was built right on the Berlin Wall line, and it had this reader board that that would that would put put out the news to the masses. It was pointed straight at East Berlin, telling them all about all the great successes that were going on in in West Germany and Western life, and everything that the East couldn't couldn't enjoy at all. Yes, yeah, it was it was very confrontational. Yeah. yeah. So, so how was the how was the Springer Press pre presented in in um in Bull's book Katarina Bloom, and what was Bull's relationship with the Springer Press as well as the Bader Meinhof gang? Well, oh, um, let's take that in in parts. Really, I think Bull's attitude was that the Springer Press had really. Uh, attempted to try the Bader-Meinhof gang in the papers before they'd even been caught, before they'd come to court, they were they were found guilty. And I think Burl really was a bit of an idealist. He wanted, he felt that it was more important to work out why the Bader-Meinhof gang were doing the things they were doing. What was it that made them so discontented? What were their arguments with the West German state? Whereas the Springer Press was just anxious to condemn them instantly and to tie them as troublemakers and communists, of course. Um, there have been a few clashes, and Burl had clashed with the Springer Press several times um, by the time he wrote The Lost Honour of Katharina Bloom, and it was based on the story of a, a professor of psychology from Hanover who had quite innocently, quite inadvertently, offered some young people... Um, uh, uh, allowed them to spend the night in his flat. And of course, it turned out that they were wanted by the police. And very quickly, the Springer Press found out about this and started to publish stuff about this. And uh, his social life was completely destroyed. His social circle was completely destroyed. He lost his job. His life was ruined. And this was not because of anything that he'd been you know, um, convicted of or found guilty of in court. This was simply trial by newspaper. And Burl really didn't like this. This was very, for him, this was very undemocratic. And really it smacked of the kind of smear tactics that the Nazis had used. He really was opposed to it. Yeah, and yeah. you know, it's you know, funny, it's, when, I, when, I when I think about that, think about that story, story and the, and, and, and the and Katarina the Bloom character, character, to a certain extent, I, I, almost I almost feel like, despite like this particular, particular person's story, story, it almost it felt almost like a little bit of a straw man. man. I, 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 I sort of play that role of trying to edit it in hindsight. And I almost worry that her character was... was she was, she was this literally utter innocent. She had zero idea. And... And, she, and her life is utterly destroyed. And to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of looking back 40 years on was how many people in German society actually professed this open support for this group. And and, and a lot of them, well, not a lot, of, but, but, a, but a, a portion of people materially helped this group and later probably came to regret it or had really mixed feelings about this. Um, the, the fact that the group was on the run for two years, they were, they were 
put up put in up many safe houses by people that knew what they were doing, but later came to regret it after they became deadly and stuff. I almost wish it it had more explored you know, it had more explored these people that that so willingly profess support and then later when that, that theory turned to praxis came to regret that. But I don't know. What do you think? Do you find his arguments powerful or 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 is it is it kind of like the perfect exploration as it is? Well, that, that's that's a really tricky question. I suppose you know he he is as much a part of his time um, as the gang, and yeah, we can look at we can look back and say with with uh, hindsight, you know that that uh, yeah, she's she is a bit too perfect. She is a bit too innocent. Uh, I think in real life it would be very hard to find somebody who is so totally naive as she is. Um, but on the other hand. Um, we, you know, hindsight is is twenty twenty. Uh, you know, we do have a great deal more knowledge than um, she would have had at that time, or even Burl might have had at that time. And I think, at the time the novel was written, there was a general feeling that there was uh, th- that the Nazi past had somehow gone underground. That nobody really wanted to talk about it. It was. It was not fit subject for conversation, and yet at the same time there was a desperate confusion as to what that Nazi past was and how individual people had contributed to it. And I think the idea that this desperate conformity, this willingness to believe what you read in the papers was part of it, um, maybe it did demand the in the story, maybe it did demand that the life of an innocent, a complete innocent, a complete naive is um, ruined. To have something a bit more nuanced is maybe what we would expect now, but I think at the time he was making his point in the strongest way that he knew. But at the time, I think there was, at first, there was tremendous sympathy for the uh, Bader-Meinhof gang amongst young people. Yeah. And the Allensbacher Institute, uh, one of the researchers there, um, produced a survey of public opinion in, in 1971 where they showed that 18% of Germans under the age of 30 thought the gang was acting out of genuine political conviction, and 25% of those questioned had a certain sympathy for the gang, and 10% were ready to give them shelter. Now, that's just before they actually started killing people. Yeah. And I think opinion changed rather dramatically after that. Yeah, I did a a, a short documentary where I I referenced that... um, that poll and when you think about how extraordinary that is if you put it in raw numbers it turns out that we're talking about eight million germans that are saying i would either give them shelter for the night or i would consider that that's that's an astonishing figure i'm trying to think of any time in um in any western history where that many members of a, of a um, population of a, of, a, of a western power were expressing an open willingness to provide material support for people whose professed goal is to bring down their own state um and in retrospect i think well it was pretty clear these were people that were 
primed Primed to talk about about evolution, evolution, to talk about societal change in this way, but there wasn't any concrete action. Once that concrete action, once those bombings started to happen, I think that support utterly disappeared. And and then it became became referred to as the the war of 60 million. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that kind of attitude, and and it is predominantly the young people, uh, the people who have no experience of the war, but people who are coming to understand their own parents' involvement in yeah. Nazism and the crimes of the Nazis. Um, it's, it's predominantly that group of society that's more sympathetic towards the Baden-Meinhof gang. But that kind of attitude caused the police enormous problems because they concluded that the um, the, the, the political climate for a successful police hunt simply didn't exist. They couldn't catch these people. They had enormous difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at sometimes it seems like there was this self-sustaining kind of nexus between the West German state, the Springer Press, and the Red Army faction. So they, they seem to work totally independently, but they were totally dependent on each other. They, they seem to work as this kind of snake that was utterly tied to each other. How did, um, how did, for instance, like the German government help build the Springer Press and, and be so utterly connected to them? Because as you're saying, in post-war Germany, the Allied powers clearly were trying to prevent the rise of something like the Springer Press, yet it seems to me that they were entirely partially responsible, entirely partially. They were, they, were, they were a very strong component of why the Springer Press was so successful for so long. Yeah, um... I think you're right. It's a kind of symbiotic relationship that the the Red Army faction, the, the, the Baden-Meinhof gang, were convinced that the government, that West Germany was a, a Nazi state, if only people would realize it. And I think their tactic was to force the government to show that it was a Nazi uh, organization, uh, or at least it was Nazi-like. Um, and, and of course, in order to to force the government to show that it was Nazi-like, the Red Army faction had to become more and more extreme. And the more extreme it became, the more the reaction it got from the government, the more the Springer press howled and shouted for blood. And you're absolutely right. These three things just chase each other around in a circle. Yeah. yeah, you know, the, so much of the you're you're mentioning there the, the RAF critique of German society. They they it talked about this hidden fascist element in German society, and in fact, an extremely real element. You know, it's so funny in America last year when when we were trying to pass this kind of pathetically small attempt at healthcare. Um, it became this common meme against the right to call Obama. Hitler and refer to them as Nazis. And I'm thinking, and first of all, that's obviously horribly offensive, but back in the late sixties, the left and the RAF would call their government Nazi and they were referring to actual honest to God, real Nazis. But the reality is that the state, especially in retrospect, wasn't particularly fascist, even though there was that element hidden within it. But, you know, you mentioned in your article, you talked about how basically Bull had a critique of the Springer Press and they were using fascist elements. What do you mean by that? What are some of the things they would do that, that were similar to how the Nazis treated um, people they didn't like in, say, the 30s and 40s? Well, I think one of the things you might think about in, in, in those terms is 
where did the Nazis go at the end of the war? Um, they came out of the prison camps. They had to go through a process called the denazification process. And they all got a, a denazification certificate, which the Germans called their Perselschein, Persel after the washing up, after the washing powder, because it made them whiter than white. Hmm. And uh, they all had to show this uh, Perselschein whenever they went for a job. But the truth was that um, America had recruited uh, a lot of scientists in a thing called Operation Paperclip, um, including Werner von Braun for the rocket program. And in Germany, a lot of the people who had worked in intelligence had gone straight into in uh, the Nazi intelligence services, in the Wehrmacht intelligence service, for example, had been recruited after the war into the West German intelligence service. And um, one of them, the leader of the uh, Wehrmacht intelligence service, a man called Reinhard Galen, had actually managed to parlay his files for um, a role as head of the West German intelligence service working under the, what was to become the CIA. And he has written um, in several places, he made no secret of his view that it, for an intelligence service to work effectively, it had to establish good contacts with uh, the newspapers and with the press service, with radio and TV. And he said, and this is a quote, obviously any such links with the press and other mass media have to be handled very gingerly if there are not to be misunderstandings. Now that's a very nice uh, and very typically Nazi use of language that you disguise what you're really saying very carefully. But what he's talking about is getting his own men in. And um, if you look, for example, at one of the big German newspapers, Der Spiegel, which wasn't owned by the Springer Press, um, several of the uh, people who worked on the um, newspaper had were actually former members of the of the Nazi intelligence services, and they liaised with the Galen organization through a man called Franz Alfred Six, who had provided intelligence for the Einsatzgruppen on the Eastern Front, the killing units, yeah. who had identified communists and Jews in Eastern Europe. Uh, now that's a very clear connection. And the problem is, of course, that uh, there are people who have not severed their links with Nazism right through the 60s um, in the military, in politics, in law, in newspapers, in the police forces, right across Germany. How could it be otherwise? These people had to go somewhere. They needed jobs. Uh, the problem is really whether they severed a connection to Nazism or just quietly allowed it to drop. And I think the, sen the sense that you have in Burl's view and in, uh, to a certain extent in the Red Army Faction's view is that these people are hidden Nazis. They've not broken at all with Nazism. They're still secret Nazis, if you like, and this is the problem for the West German state. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, the Bader-Meinhof gang and the, and the Springer press, they, it's, it's ironic in a sense because they seem to be fighting a war over the same exact audience, this yes. um, working class to lower middle class Germans. And and yes. you could argue, I guess, that the Bader Meinhof group, they utterly lost this war. They didn't gain any widespread support amongst these people they're fighting for, especially when they started their bombing campaign. Yet the Springer Press, they seem to own the minds of these of these folks. So 
you know, and, and you could argue it's sort of like a, it, it, you know, I don't think it's a case of this going into a battle with somebody that uh, prints ink by the barrel, but somehow they've, they've won that. They controlled the minds. What did they do? How did they, how did they court the, the working class and the, and the lower class of Germany to be so successful? How are they so successful in winning over these people? It, it, it seems astonishing the level of readership they have. I, I, it's hard to even find a parallel with how, how successful they were. That's true. I, I think it's, it, it's partly by the style of the journalism, the style of the presentation and the kind of stories they tell. Um, they really did offer things that appealed to um, the lowest common denominator in a way. And it, it's part of this peculiar cultural and political complex that emerges in Germany after the war of conformity, of a desperate need, desperate desire not to stand out, not to be different, not to be seen as a troublemaker. Um, and given the kind of stories that they're producing, they are... They're saying, look, you know, the average German is interested in sex and a car and the TV and not much else. So let's just concentrate on that. Yeah. So tell, tell me about um, Sven Simon and Rudy Duchka. Tell me their stories. Ah, yeah. Now, this is... Sorry, you have to excuse me for just a moment. We have the builders in next door yeah. here. And <laughs> That's totally okay. I don't know whether you can hear it. They've, they've got a huge... They're... They're putting in a new sort of driveway next door. So we've got this steamroller kind of thing driving oh up and God. down outside and the whole oh, house is vibrating. Well, it sounds <laughs> just fine on my end. So that's totally oh, good. OK. <laughs> um, OK, Sven Simon. Um, Springer, when Springer, when Axel Springer set up the Springer Press, he really did want to create an empire and he wanted to create a dynasty, really, that he could pass on to his son that would be handed down. And the problem was that his son, I don't think, was really of the same mindset as Springer. Um, he used to work under the name of Sven Simon, and he was a very well-known and respected sports journalist. Um, and few people at the time even knew that he was Springer's son. That's right. He he made it on his own, uh, on his own reputation. He 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 worked his way up from you know being journalist to being a senior editor, uh, but he did it under the name of Sven Simon. And although some people must have known, I think most people didn't know. Yeah. Um, but I think he was he was more interested in sport and, and not at all of the same mindset as his father. And I think he didn't always like the way his father's operations worked. And one of the things that really went quite seriously wrong was that the articles that they ran about the student leader, Rudy Dutschka, went seriously wrong. They um, put out a few articles saying somebody must solve our problem, somebody must get rid of this man. And one uh, sad, lonely little Nazi, a man who used to paint pictures of Adolf Hitler to hang on his wall, one sad character uh, did actually go out one day, stalked Rudi Dutschke and shot him as he came out of the chemist. He was getting medicine for his son. And this man shot Dutschke. Um, 
Dutchka survived, but really quite severely damaged. It took him a long time to begin to operate, to get around and to lead anything like a normal life again. And Sven Simon, I think, was so upset, so scandalised by this um, and the role that his father's newspapers had played in this assassination attempt. He started to visit Dutchka in secret and he gave Dutchka's partner and his child, he gave them money and over the next couple of years became quite a close family friend. Uh, the problem was that Dutchka never fully recovered from the injuries and he was warned that he, for example, he should never take a bath alone because he suffered blackouts and he could have a blackout in the bath, he could drown. And Dutchka went along with this for a little while, but he obviously found it very irksome. And one day he did exactly what he'd been told not to. He took a bath alone, uh, unsupervised, uh, had a blackout and he drowned. Mm. And Sven Simon was so upset by this, uh, he, he committed suicide shortly afterwards. And how did, his, was, how did his dad take this? Or do we know? Do we know how his dad reacted to this? We, we, don't, we don't know in any great detail how his father um, took the news, but th there's some press coverage and some gossip column coverage to suggest, and some, you know, a little bit of uh, information in the various biographies of Springer that have appeared to suggest that he took this very, very badly. Um, he had created the largest press conglomerate in Europe and he had no one to hand it on to yeah. it must yeah. have been it must have hit him really really hard and Sven Simon was only 38 when he killed himself a young man yeah, it, yeah. terrible if you go to um if you go to Berlin you go to uh the, where the Springer Press building is now one of the small streets in front of it is named um, actual Springer Strauss. In fact, it's right in front of where yes. a riot happened following the assassination attempt on Rudy Duchka. Not actual Springer Strauss, yes. Rudy Duchka Strauss. It is named after him, and and I um, and I wonder how that came to be named. And I wonder if um, there was a camera positioned in Lord Actual Springer's grave to observe him rolling over in it as he learned that the road in front of his uh, his beloved headquarters was named after his his great bet noir. Um, it yes. just seems incredible that this road was named after him. How did that, how that come to be? Well, after Springer's death, uh, I think the, the Springer estate petitioned the Berlin authorities to name the street on which the Springer press is located to call it actual Springer Strasse. After which some of Rudy Dutchka's friends uh, petitioned the authorities to name the small street that crosses Springerstrasse as Dutchkes as Rudy Dutchkesstrasse, and I, and I think it's an interesting word. It crosses yep. Springerstrasse in in a sort of uh, very nice metaphor um, in the way that they had crossed in real life too. And yeah, I'm sure that strange whirring noise you can hear is Springer rotating in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's such a perfectly it's a perfect encapsulation of of what i find this kind of prototypical berlin humor that even in yeah. the most grave of situations they will find a kind of funny gallows humor and to have that 
Rudy Dutschka Strasse crossing Springer's Road is just perfect in a sense. I think it's a very Berlin sense of humor. I think the authorities had a, a very nice sense of history, but also a very fine sense of humor when they did this. Yeah. You know, I tried to avoid making parallels between Germany of 30 years ago and today. For a while there, I used to do it with everything. I was convinced everything that happened now, any bit of terrorism, oh, it's just like what happened in Germany. Because, you know, that was on my mind. And lately I started to realize you have to be careful doing that. It's not everything is like it, but some things are totally unavoidable. And to a certain extent, it's hard to avoid the parallels between Springer Press of the 60s and 70s and the Rupert Murdoch empire of today. Do you see those parallels or are there ways where it's not a parallel? I see the parallels, but like you, I'm, I'm cautious about pushing them too far. Um, I think the fact that the Murdoch empire has actually been severely embarrassed by this um, is is a plus. Um, the parallels are not quite the same. The world is not quite the same. But at the same time, I think the police were very slow and very reluctant to act. Um, they clearly knew more than they let on and, and really didn't want to pursue this. And it's only, uh, the, you know, really the fact that so many people, something like, I think there are something like 3,000 witnesses now yeah. queuing up to give evidence that their phones, their telephones have been hacked by News of the World journalists. Um, this, is, this is more active citizenship um, okay, it may come out of a kind of celebrity status for some of them, but there are some really sad and, and very awful cases there. People, you know, who've lost children, whose phones are hacked, whose private messages are um, taken. Um, these are some desperate invasions of privacy. But at the same time, it's not quite in this. It's not it, the parallels are not quite the same. Yeah, they don't yeah, seem they, to have the overall scope of power or, or of, of mind control that, that Bild seemed to have over such a huge swath of the German population. Um, they may be more effective in targeted ways, but it's hard to picture the Murdoch Empire, for instance, having 50 to 90% of the eyeballs reading newspapers just reading a Murdoch paper, for instance. Well, I think one of the... One of the uh... Maybe one of the upsides of the information superhighway is that um, people get their information, people communicate in diverse ways, and that kind of monopoly, you have to work very, very hard um, and diversify incredibly in order to control that proportion of the total communication system. Um, In Hitler's day, radio and newspapers were it. Television barely existed. mobile phones didn't exist you know in that sense the world is a rather different place yeah yeah so what drew so your what interest to heinrich bullen the springer press, press. Uh, well it was burl really i'm i'm mainly interested in writers so the and I, I like to think i have an eye for a good story so when i realized that sven simon was involved in this and started to piece these bits and bits and bobs together you know I realized there's an interesting story here, but I'd been doing some work on science fiction and the Third Reich and looking at this character that I mentioned earlier, Franz Alfred Six, and looking at his career. He's one of the sort of um, 
second rank Nazis, not one of the big guys, not one of the famous ones, and just realized um, how important these, these second rankers had been and how influential Franz Alfred Six had been. And then just thinking of the post-war spin-off and wondering what had happened, where had these Nazis gone after the war had finished, after they'd come out of the camps, what did they do with their lives? I started researching six, and then there was a little bit of spin-off into other areas, and this was one of the one of the areas of spin-off. Yeah, yeah. Bull is well, definitely a, a fascinating writer to some extent. Um, you know, I, I I I I've read other of his works, and of course, my favorite is Katerina Bloom because of this. But it was a good entree for me to discover a, a really really interesting, fantastic. Um, fantastic writer, and of course, he won the the um, Nobel Prize for Literature. I think right yeah. about this exact time, didn't he win it in like seventy three yeah. or seventy four? Three seventy four, I think it was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, what are you currently working on? What's what's what what what's what are the types of things you're working on now? Um, I'm working on a collection of a new collection of short stories. Uh, I'm also working on a new novel, which is set in Greece. Um. And I'm working on a book about creative writing, about this peculiar thing that we all do called writing, just trying to look at it in a way that makes us appreciate what a wonderful invention the alphabet was and what a strange thing writing really is when you think about it. We make these peculiar little squiggles and then somebody comes along and interprets them. How do we do this? <laughs> that sounds honestly totally fascinating. Well, Professor Tai, I totally appreciate you spending um, some time with me. I appreciate you sharing your um, article. It was uh, reprinted by the um, online uh, magazine of your university, which I'm going to link to on my site if people want to read it and discover more. And again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. And thank you for getting up so early in the morning to talk with me. Bottom line, huh? Bottom line.